0: Hello and welcome to Big Earth Energy, I'm your host Dwayne Fields and our mission here is to discuss all things sustainable thinking and action. It's important, it's complicated and we can all learn more about what's actually going on and more importantly why. And to give you some information as to who I am, I'm a presenter, and explorer and I've been fortunate enough to have led many carbon neutral expeditions through some of the world's most inhospitable places. I also co-founded the We Two Foundation a charity focused on encouraging young people from deprived areas to learn more about sustainable living and general climate literacy. We'll be speaking with experts from different fields of sustainable thinking and action to hear more about the work they're doing, why they're doing it, and what we could be doing to up our own environmental game. If you like what we're doing here, be sure to check out TWIG, the people behind Big Earth Energy, who are doing some really cool stuff with their bank of things. So check out their app, which allows you to start your own climate action today. While making money, you'll be extending a life of items and ultimately actioning sustainable behaviours. You can find them at twigcard.com. The theme of this episode is breathing new life into fabric and joining us to explore this idea is Laura Rana from Kushikanta. Laura, hello and welcome to the podcast. It's so good to have you here. Thank you. Tell me more about your company and what it is that you do.
1: So Kushikanta is a non-profit social enterprise And our mission as a social enterprise is to create opportunities for mums in Bangladesh to provide for their children with dignity and contribute to the circular economy.
0: Why Bangladesh in particular?
1: I spent a long time living in Bangladesh through my career in the international development and humanitarian sector. And I now have half Bangladeshi twin daughters.
0: And is that part of the inspiration, the catalyst for you forming Kushikata?
1: Definitely. I mean, the many years I spent living and working in Bangladesh, I was always really inspired by the incredible resilience of the mums I met, who were doing everything they could to build better futures for their
0: kids. Why Kushikanta in its current form and why not something else?
1: Well, I started with the opportunity of wanting to do something to support other mums whose position I could easily be in myself if circumstances were different. So I first moved to Bangladesh when I was 24 and I was working over there on the humanitarian response to the Rohingya refugee crisis. And I think it was particularly being pregnant over there that really kind of brought it home like all the opportunities I'd be able to give to my girls compared to all the mums all around me. So I wanted to do something about it. But i was i didn't quite have an idea of, of what to do so i came home to london and then when my girls were born they were given a large collection of these traditional bengali cutter blankets so the blankets are traditionally made from old saris so the idea is it's like a, a really nice kind of story of the mums or, or the grandmothers like sadly life expectancies can be quite short in bangladesh so quite often it's the grandmother's old saris that will be used to make a blanket for the baby And the cotton's really soft because it's been washed so many times. And it's like, you know, multipliers the fabric. So then the baby's like always got a piece of the grandmother.
0: That's so beautiful. One of the favorite people in my life. Well, it's my great grandmother. I've never met my grandparents and I love the thought of always being wrapped in something that reminds me of her. Are you quite an empathetic person? Because it sounds to me like you're putting yourself in the shoes of some of these women. Anytime there's any kind of humanitarian crisis, women are disproportionately affected. Is that why you focused on them?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's obviously just like pure lack of birth. It depends like where you're born, what kind of circumstances you're born into. It determines so much of your life choices. Right. So and I think particularly being pregnant. I mean, there's also like the hormonal, like emotional side. I was working like 24 seven on this massive humanitarian crisis and just poverty. Inequality is so in your face anyway, like everywhere, but really kind of brought it home like personally to me.
0: Talk me through the life cycle of one of these blankets, because it's called a happy blanket, isn't it? Yeah. That's the translation.
1: Well, I think the first thing to explain about the production approach is that we've actually reworked the traditional approach to cutter. So the word cutter, it can translate literally as blanket, but it also refers to the technique of upcycling old saris into blankets. So traditionally, all these blankets would be like collected door to door from women in a village and there's no traceability. They're not certified to say the dyes that are used to colour the fabric doesn't contain harmful chemicals. I mean, logically, because the fabric has been washed so many hundreds of times over the years, there wouldn't be any chemicals in it, but you need to have the certification. So I wanted to keep that idea of repurposing fabric, but do it in a way that meets UK product safety standards. So I think when I first had the idea, I was all set to head over to Bangladesh and like, I'm used to kind of my Bengali is by no means fluent, but I'm kind of quite comfortable, like running around trying to figure things out, you know, speaking a bit of Bangladesh, basically, and figuring it all out. And then obviously, when the pandemic hit, like many other people in the world, my plans had to change.
0: Trying to work out sourcing material from a country that isn't your first language, but doing it remotely. How was that?
1: I mean I like a challenge so <laughs> yeah, well, <you> do, yeah. <laughs> yeah so basically I wanted to come up with an idea of like re- still keeping the kind of circular principles of reclaiming and repurposing and reusing fabric but doing it in a way that met product safety standards and Bangladesh is really famous for being the home of the garments industry And basically at every stage of the supply chain of garments, some fabric, loads of fabric gets wasted, particularly during the pandemic with all the cancelled orders. You know, there was so much fabric like just sitting around. So we're working with a got certified factory who've donated fabric to us. And so basically the positive thing about this fabric is that it's all certified because it was intended to be made for garments in a Western market. Initially, I had the idea that I was only going to use, so it's known as dead stock fabric, this waste fabric. I'm learning loads of things I can't even thread a a needle myself like I'm definitely not from a textiles background at all I actually ended up working with my mum's best mate who worked in the textiles industry and she was also a textiles teacher so I managed to get her involved in kind of helping me navigate you know some of the technical sides of things
0: so you get some money from selling the blankets which look awesome by the way what happens to the person on the ground that's making these blankets
1: So my background in the charity sector, right, and I've worked for, there's definitely a place for charity, particularly like in humanitarian crises, for example, you know, you need money to get to feed people and sort out all sorts of other emergency needs. But I ended up working for a lot of like programs where the budget was like 50 million pounds, 100 million pounds to lift families out of poverty. And so I work in impact measurement. So it's basically looking at if there's a program designed to take people out of poverty is it actually having a lasting impact you know are you lifting the households out of poverty over the long term and sadly I found that actually in terms of the return on investment like the amount of grant funding that was going into those programs I didn't really see sustainable poverty alleviation so what I'm trying to do is come up with a business model like people want to buy the product in and of itself especially you know if you think the phrase like made in Bangladesh, it has negative connotations, right? You think of like sweatshop labor, exploitation. We want to kind of represent the opposite of that. So think of made in Bangladesh as a positive thing and try and come up with a product that people don't want to just buy like as a pity purchase, you know, as like, oh, I'll buy this to like help a mum." Babies are being born all the time. People like to buy gifts for babies. There's definitely, it's kind of a time when you have a baby. It's like a particular time of over consumption, right? And there's a certain guilt around that. You know, what do you buy for babies? Like they don't need anything. So we're trying to come up with something that's, like ethical, sustainable, beautiful, meaningful, unique gift that kind of happens to also have a lovely story behind it and like has a positive impact. So the idea is to be able to create like ongoing income generation opportunities for the mothers that we partner with.
0: This sounds awesome. The difference that it's making to the women and it's predominantly women that make these blankets, isn't it?
1: Yeah, so they're all women and they're all mothers. The difference is is making is providing them with a safe and dignified ongoing income generating opportunity so for a lot of mothers in Bangladesh that want to provide a better future for their kids and who've got limited literacy and other kind of employability skills the only option is to leave their kids behind in the village and move to the city and work in garments factories I mean we're all increasingly aware of the conditions and all sorts of exploitation like in in various forms that goes on there so by partnering with us they can work from the safety of their own homes they can stay with their children they can work flexible hours ar- around you know, their childcare and, and other commitments but the thing that I'm not doing yet at this early stage in our journey is we're not able to pay monthly salaries so we're still paying a piece rate we pay a kind of fair and dignified wage we've calculated it based on um, an internationally validated methodology. So as I said, my background's in impact measurement. Like all the literature suggests that a really important factor for households to lift themselves out of poverty is having that reliability of income. It's the same in the UK, right? Like if you don't know that you're getting a certain amount in each month, then you can't plan financially for the long term. So making decisions like being able to take your, like stop your kids working and, and putting them in school instead. So that's our number one strategic priority at the moment is to build up our sales enough that we can shift from paying piece rates to paying monthly salaries.
0: How many women do you have making these garments?
1: Right now we've only got five, so we're really small. Well, that's
0: five households that you're changing slowly. It's awesome. If you like what we're doing here, be sure to check out Twig, the people behind Big Earth Energy, who are doing some really cool stuff with their bank of things. So check out their app, which allows you to start your own climate action today. While making money, you'll be extending a life of items and ultimately action in sustainable behaviours. You can find them at twigcard.com. If I use the term climate literacy, what immediately comes to mind?
1: I think for me, it's about actions. It's kind of about understanding like the climate impacts of our decision-making and our day-to-day behaviour, but in a way that translates into action. So I've been doing some research at the moment. I'm doing a part-time master's in sustainability leadership at Cambridge. I was really lucky to be sponsored by Chanel because they're excited by what I'm trying to do at Kushikata and um, particularly around the kind of impact measurement model that we have so I've been doing a lot of reading about something called the value action gap which is basically yeah when people say oh sustainability is really important to me I want to make ethical consumption choices and then in reality like that doesn't actually translate into purchasing behavior so yeah for me literacy is about taking that understanding and translating it to action
0: if I came to you and I said look how can I improve my sustainable living I don't know where to start what would you tell me
1: One of the number one things is about this idea of like reclaim, repurpose, reuse. So secondhand stuff, especially with clothes, right? Kids go out of them so quickly, like anything you can do. I mean, there's lots of innovative rental models around and stuff. But for me, the simplest thing to do is just go down the local charity shop or go on these like Facebook marketplaces and stuff. And I think also like trying to find one product that can do lots of things so for example like our, our blankets I mean, they're, they're multi-purpose so that rather than having to buy like a blanket to wrap your baby in and then something else like a, a muslin to kind of clean up all the delightful liquids that come out
0: and <laughs> yeah, there's plenty well, of those <laughs> yeah from
1: all different places yeah. um is trying to think of anything you can do that kind of reduces consumption
0: one of the things that i struggle with is my kids have too much stuff A lot of it, I didn't buy them and they're still in boxes. And I find myself going to the charity shop and dropping a box or a big bag off to Bernardo's. How do we get people to stop giving us stuff, you know, in a kind way?
1: My kids are going to a birthday party this weekend and I'm on a WhatsApp group with all the nursery mums. And one of them just said, why don't we all put in a fiver or tenner or, you know, whatever. And just buy one present that the, you know, ask the parents, like, is there something the kids would really like?
0: My kids really want a PlayStation 5. Yeah. so yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, come and join our WhatsApp group and we'll see what we can do.
0: You know, there's people out there, I'm going to play devil's advocate here. Sustainability, that's someone else's issue. What would you say to me?
1: I think this is one of the difficult things, particularly with like kind of climate change as a term or a concept, right? It's abstract. A lot of the impacts already, the kind of tangible impacts that you can see are happening far away and it almost it seems like it's such a massive issue. It's like people just thinking, oh, even if they do think it's an issue, they're like, well, what can I do about it? So I think it's about trying to understand like little everyday things that you can do to change your behavior and also, you know, human connection and empathy. So like with Kushikata, we're trying to con- create connections between mothers. So it's, you know, kind of a mother in London and then a mother in Bangladesh. You know, in some ways, the world's smaller than ever, but there's still that idea of like, oh, happening far away.
0: Is there a particular industry or business or company that you think is doing particularly badly in terms of being carbon neutral?
1: Well, I mean, we've we've talked about the garments industry in Bangladesh. I think there's all the um, classic examples of brands that are not doing great stuff that's um, being produced in Bangladesh. I mean, when I was living over there, I was part of the charity sector, right? So people yes. working for Action Aid, Save the Children, Red Cross. Then there were the people working for the garment sector. You know, they were kind of known as like the dark side, like the evil ones. And the two didn't really mix. Whereas one of the great things about doing this master's particularly, I'm mixing with lots of people from the the corporate sector. You know, it's not about like us and them and, and people actually like have to work together. And sometimes naming and shaming isn't always the most effective approach.
0: I completely agree. We need to work together on this. This isn't uh, they fix the problem or we fix the problem. It's everyone has to do it. All right, so let's say I had the power to click my fingers, magic up a billion pounds, and I was going to give that to you for a sustainable action plan. What would your plan look like?
1: To be honest, I struggle a bit thinking about the the big picture at the moment because I'm so engrossed in like the minutiae of, you know, kind of trying to make every little tiny decision that we're making at Kushikata as sustainable as possible. And, and as I've explained, we're operating at a really small scale. The first thing that comes to mind is thinking about how we could take that billion and grow it. So by investing in social enterprises, you know, looking at kind of social return on investment and how we can sort of get the biggest bang for our buck. I know there's all sorts of like clever technological innovations out there. So I would definitely speak to people who are a lot more intelligent than me in that department. Like I'm a bit of a technophobe and get their advice. Again, like from our social enterprise perspective, we're like the total opposite end of, you know, we're focusing on everything being handmade and like kind of minimal amount of technology. But I think once you start to think kind of, big scale differences, then probably taking a slightly different approach than what we're doing.
0: You're Prime Minister of the UK. And I said, right, we need a sustainable living action plan. What does that look like?
1: So I think when you think about behaviour change, it's about kind of understanding the things that really drive people to change their behaviour and not just sort of give it the chat. So, you know, in terms of, again, this this idea of the value action gap, not just about what makes people say because they think it sounds good, like they're going to live more sustainably. So kind of understanding like incentives, like both positive and negative, that actually drive behaviour in terms of the kind of things that have the biggest impact so things around like housing stock for example in the UK reducing consumption you know reusing and, and repurposing resources and, and things like that
0: so let's say I give you a lamp and it's you know I've got a magic genie in it you rub this thing and cloud pops out and it says you've got three wishes what would you wish for
1: So the first one would be equality of opportunity. I think like so many things that will come to mind, they all kind of relate to that as the the basic essence, right? Of kind of equality of life chances. In terms of like what's going through my mind at the moment of like what I'm working on, I would think about tougher legislation on, on greenwashing. So again like with my social enterprise we've got no budget for marketing advertising like we're really trying so hard to make every aspect of the production and and what we're doing as sustainable as possible but then you get massive brands out there who've got people who've got skills and, and money to put behind like advertising and marketing campaigns and you know they're talking about being sustainable but then when you actually look at the substance behind it and i think the only real way to make changes and stop them being able to do that is legislation And the third one, again, topical right now, like affordable childcare from a UK point of view. I'm doing an accelerator at the moment with an organization called Alia for Hackney based female founders of impact driven businesses. And I've met so many amazing women doing so many incredible things. But um, yeah, it's, it's really hard with the cost of childcare in London.
0: So what's the thing that you feel the most shame about when it comes to your, I don't know, your day to day life in terms of your carbon footprint?
1: Well, I used to fly a lot for my job. So as well as having been based in places like Bangladesh, I also did headquarters roles in London where, you know, you kind of pop in and out of different countries for a week or two. But increasingly now I tend to work with researchers based in countries. So for example, I've just been doing some work in Ghana, Gambia and India. And I've worked with somebody who's based in Ghana who can actually understand the local context. And there's loads of other reasons why it makes sense to work with local people as opposed to me jetting in for a week or so, you know, being jet lagged, like not understanding the language and, and stuff as well as the environmental
0: stuff. I feel so terrible because that's my thing. I fly so much now and I feel a lot of guilt for it. So I end up doing things like planting trees, getting involved in local initiatives to kind of offset it. But I'm not a big fan of the word offset uh-huh. because that doesn't take away the fact that you've created it in the first place. You know, offsetting's a way to kick it down the line and get rid of some of the responsibility.
1: Yeah, I think from our social enterprise perspective in, in terms of the carbon guilt and, and it's something that we've quite rightly been asked about and I've you know, proactively tried to think about is the international shipping. So our products are made in Bangladesh. We ship batches every few months by plane. I would love to be able to do that by a boat instead, for example, but we're just not at anything like the, I've been really lucky to get some pro bono advice from shipping companies and it's does the volume that you need to be able to do that is just not where we're at. And then i've also had people saying there's a british Bangladeshi community in london for example they've got the embroidery skills there's a lot of marginalized women who would love some employment opportunities but just if we were to pay the london living wage and then you know factor in all the other costs we'd have to be charging like 250 quid for the blankets which just isn't realistic and then we'd still be shipping the raw materials from bangladesh anyway so it's like how much difference would it make for the carbon footprint
0: let's talk about the positive stuff that you're doing and how it's working out
1: the main thing is just, again, coming back to this idea of the next generation, right? So trying to speak to our kids and kind of leading through example. My girls are only three, but we try to have conversations with them about recycling and like basic everyday things in ways that they can understand. So they just kind of grow up with that automatic sense of, yeah, well, of course I would do this because it's just what makes sense.
0: Just going back to you being prime minister, because I liked you being prime minister. You're having a big celebration. There's a party at your house. There's one place left. At the door is Greta Thunberg and Donald Trump. Who are you going to let in?
1: My natural instinct would be to say Donald Trump, (laughs) because i said I like a challenge, otherwise I wouldn't have tried to start a social enterprise operating between the UK and Bangladesh with eight months old -old twins (laughs) during a global pandemic. But I think I'd have to say Greta. I think if there was any thread of me that would think that being able to change Donald Trump's Position on anything would be viable, but I think it's kind of a no hoper right? So I'll go with Greta. I think there's a lot that I could learn from her.
0: Are there any resources that you'd point people towards? It could be books, blogs, it could be a webpage that you'd send people to to find out more.
1: I mean, to be honest, I'm reading a lot of academic papers for my masters at the moment, but I wouldn't want to inflict those on people. So. I would say the podcast I'm enjoying most at the moment there's there's two of them by an organization called Pioneers Post. One of them's called Fit for the Future and one of them's Good Leaders and they're basically just conversations with social entrepreneurs so with a kind of environmental sustainability focus but sort of broader you know using a financially sustainable business model to try and do positive things for the world and it's just really inspiring i think understanding other people's journeys like how they've got through challenges and you know kind of the the impact they're creating and and what they're doing.
0: Great stuff. Laura, it's been wonderful talking to you. If our listeners want to find out more about you, your business, where can we send them to find out more?
1: So our website is kushikata.com. That's K-H-U-S-H-I-K-A-N-T-H-A.com.
0: Great. That was Big Earth Energy. Thank you to you, Laura, for joining us. And thank you, dear listeners. We'll be back with another episode soon.